The Stages podcast acknowledges the traditional custodians of the lands on which our artists and audiences meet. We pay our respect to past, present and emerging elders. We acknowledge the important role that art has played on these lands for thousands of years and feel privileged to work alongside artists continuing the creative practice of one of the oldest surviving cultures in the world. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives... Then the next block further down there was the Royal, then the Prince Edward was right opposite the Royal, then the Savoy. And we used to get fined if you were late for the half hour and fined for misbehaving on stage. Just for God's sake, do it better. (laughs) Sometimes that's all you can say. But when you've gone through that, you do get a lot of ego. And you go out there knowing that the one thing that's different every time is that audience. I didn't wake up until... I was in emergency. I was around the uh, world of actors as a child. Crawfords were needing a casting assistant. No business plan, no concept, no training. It's not something you could do now. Went to school on Friday, got on the bus on Saturday, auditioned for the show. They said, you've got the role. I never went back to school again. (laughs) Thank you. I've enjoyed being here talking about my favourite subject. Ego in check, me. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a date. It's a day. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and welcome to this episode of The Stages Podcast. Rebecca Ritchie is Opera Australia's Head of Wigs and Wardrobe. She's been with the company since she was age 19. Rebecca leads a devoted team of artists who create the opulent costumes you see on stage in every Opera Australia production. When I spoke with Rebecca, she and her team were preparing productions of La Traviata and Il Travatore. We explore the process of building these costumes and honouring the designer's vision. So many production elements contribute to the stage pictures we see across all platforms. Theatre, dance, musical theatre and of course the operatic stage. The artistry of Rebecca and her team complete the aesthetic for the audience proceeding to transport us to vivid other worlds. Rebecca Ritchie, going into the the winter season at Opera Australia, it must be a busy time. It's quite busy today. I think we've had fittings for uh, Trovatore, for Traviata, a bit of a catch-up on Boheme, and then starting planning for Phantom. So, yeah, that was just this morning. Wow. (laughs) <laughs> not a bad day's work. Not a bad work. day's work, that's right. right. So a lot of your, your working day consists of um, the operatic discipline. Are you able to listen to opera for enjoyment? Or is it, does it, has it become work? No, look, opening night is certainly listening to it for enjoyment because all the hard work is done. Then it's often the first time I get to read the surtitles because you're too busy staring at the stage for the, for the tech period. Um, so opening night is enjoyable because I might actually find out, you know, what's happening in the story rather than dealing with hems and shoes and broken jewellery. You'd have a fair idea of character, I guess, wouldn't you? Having, yeah. Having created these um, these skins for the for the actors, the singers. Yeah, I find um, particularly with a new production, you 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 get to learn more about their character. Um, uh, we've got in the current production of Trovatore um, Azucena is, you know, this old gypsy. Currently, the woman playing it is pregnant and her character kills a baby in the story. And wow. it's like this real twist on um, what the character could or should should be. Um, so, yeah, we do get to 
to see the character a lot and develop it. I find with with singers very much though, their priority is the voice and it is um, it is uh, what they think about most. So you do have this window in which to be able to develop the look of the character without um, having to conform to what they've played in the past. They're often very willing to take on a different look each time um, because their focus is, is on the voice. Yeah, the singer is known for a particular role, perhaps, that they play all around the world. Yeah. And then you get to tailor-fitted yeah. uh, for them. Yeah, it's at, often at a conversation we'll have in the fitting, how many times have you sung this role? What was the weirdest one you were ever dressed in? Um, what was your favourite? What one have you done the most? Um, and it can, you know, can range from we did a modern production set on the moon, the famous one from from Paris, um, or you know I've done a traditional one here and there, and that was my favourite. Yeah, it, um, it th- because they do sing those roles often. Um, they come with an idea of what the character should look like, but they're often very willing to take on a new a new take on it. Can the designers be as rigid as uh, the wig needs to be this colour? Or can, yes. you, can you negotiate? They are as rigid as that. It, look, Because I suppose the, the, the red wig or blonde needs to go with the costume. Yeah. Mm. It Look, the role of the designer, well, of a, of a good designer, is to understand when it's a priority that it has to be that colour and when it actually needs changing. Um, we had again, the Azucena in the other day, and the wig that they had styled was lovely, but it wasn't quite right for for her. And so we lost the hat because it looked better without the hat. So making those changes in that moment is what a good designer will do. Sticking to what they've drawn on a page without shifting either way never works. You've always got to have some kind of compromise or, or twist to make it make it work. Is music a presence in the workroom? It is on a Friday afternoon. Friday. <laughs> so what, what do you access to, uh, to chill out or to, to relax, perhaps while you're working? Um, well, because it's one big, large workroom, there's one centralised... Yeah, yeah. There's one uh, centralised... Uh, I think it might even be a CD player. That's how old it is. Um, and so the, the workroom staff will bring in their various selection of music. It's a seems to be a lot of disco, a lot of 80s hits, um, and and less modern. Not a lot of not a lot of classical, but by Friday afternoon we're needing a bit of a, a, a lift. pick up. Yeah. So um, yeah, disco, R and B, pop, that tends to be the vibe. Now you've been at the company since you were 19, I believe. Yes. Yes, I have. <laughs> so how did that come about? How did you? Uh, how were you roped into Opera Australia? I my, it was probably the Australian Opera then, wasn't it? It was the Australian yeah. Opera. Um, they were doing a production, a new production of La Boheme, directed by Baz Luhrmann. And I suspect now, with a bit of you know history with the company, they thought it was going to be a very small production. They didn't have a lot of money. Uh, the design was black and white. They were going to op shops, grabbing clothes, altering them to look 1950s. And really only putting a lot of effort into the principal staff. The, the chorus and the children were all going to be second-hand clothes. And so they needed someone with simple sewing skills that could do those alterations and not cost you too much. And Catherine Martin would have been designing. Catherine Martin was designing. Yeah. And my father at the time... My father at the time? He's still my father <laughs> yeah, at the time. That's, that's good to at know. At the time, my father... Um, 
knew Noel Staunton, who was the technical director. Yep. Um, he said, I have, you know, my daughter's graduated from high school sewing. She's currently working in a cake shop. It's a waste of time. What can you offer her? And I didn't really know at that time what I wanted to do. I'd studied at uni for a year and doing textiles and science. It was so not what I was interested in doing. And I came into the workroom basically as a cheap sewer to sit in the corner and uh, and work on the, the Bohem stuff. And I don't know whether it was the success of the show or my skill. Hopefully it was my skill. Um, but they kept me on after Bohem had opened. And we did started doing Turandot and... I kind of realised that this is exactly what I wanted to be doing. Um, and so I went away and studied at NIDA. They had a very brand new course called Theatre Crafts. That was only the second year to go through. Um, studied for two years. Then I got a phone call saying, can you come and do two weeks casual work at the opera? And then I never left. The rest is history. <laughs> yeah, the rest is history. So you joined uh, that Lava Wem Really, you just had a, a year of textiles at uni, and you're, yeah, I sewed and home sewing. Right. Absolutely, home sewing. My um, mother was a ballet dancer, so I'd been around costumes a lot. Um, she made the costumes for when we were young kids, so I'd I knew what costumes were. I kind of knew how they worked. And looking back, my favourite school subject at, when I did textiles was the costume component but I just never clicked that that was something you could actually do Um, so I had I guess that little bit of extra skill and I'd been around the theatre all the time my father was a a stage manager so I kind of knew how it worked Um, so I guess that was an extra element to kind of get me in the door so it was already in your DNA, really, wasn't it? <laughs> I know. Theatre families don't yeah. get to see the outside world. Yes. <laughs> they get locked in a theatre <laughs> and they don't know there are other options. Both my sisters became ballet dancers. It was like, you know, just destiny or something. So you were working with Tool a bit, were you? Tool can be quite difficult, kind of, to, yeah, well, that, to that, behave. Yes, it can. Um, I, it, the ballet costumes that we had were, you know, they were very amateur ballet costumes but yeah our house was just always mum sewing on the weekend reams and reams and reams of stuff ready for the next ballet concert yeah (laughs) so um career aspirations growing up was it always uh, a thought that you would go into the theatre somewhere No, no no I had I really didn't know what I wanted to do growing up um I knew that you're supposed to go to university and study so that when I graduated high school, I was like, okay, my best subject was textiles. What do I do? Here's a textile course at university. And the subjects were physics, chemistry, maths, microeconomics. Like, please don't ask me about any of those subjects because I failed them all, um, but I passed the textile component. And thankfully, when it all fell into place, when I did come and work here um, and saw what, what was capable and the buzz that you get from putting on a show that buzz of all working together to achieve something um yeah that's what what you know locked it in for me it was it was um like an eye-opening experience I've, I've never given birth to a child but <laughs> a lot of people describe it as like childbirth you know it can be a painful journey to oh, get there oh yes and often up. you don't like the child afterwards <laughs> sorry Amelia I apologize that's my daughter um yeah, it is. It's a long build-up, and it can get. There's that those two weeks before a show is on, 
to me, that's the really critical part. That's when you know if it's working or not. Mm. Um, up until before that, there's a lot of planning to do and everything is just still in the future. But those two weeks prior um, is, you know, make or break time. Yeah. And then you get to the piano dress and it is the relief of giving birth that every costume has been handed over and now you just have to deal with the problems that come out of the stage. Um, or the toddler years or something, I suppose. Yes, yes. And there are, <laughs> you're on that high when, when yeah. they are finally off your hands. Yeah, if only there was drugs for it. <laughs> ready to take on the next one. Yeah. Now, the theatre arts course at NIDA, that consisted of uh, learning how to make, uh, make costumes, perhaps yeah. uh, building props. So the course was actually split into three sections, uh, props, costume and sets. Um, and the year that... I started, we only had wardrobe and uh, props people. Um, I think now the course has expanded quite a lot. So there's only two of us that did the course the year that I did it. Um, And it was a foundation in everything. So you did historical pattern making, modern pattern making, uh, tailoring, millinery, shoes, uh, laundry, wig making, wig styling, dyeing, you know, art finishing, every element of it really. That's very comprehensive. Yeah, it was. And it was, because the course was quite new, you could sort of tailor it a little bit to to what your interests were. Um, And and NIDA, because it's students, it's run on the sweat and tears of, of many students. And so... There's not a lot of money for materials. There's not a lot of money to purchase things, but there is time to do things. And so you would spend... I mean, it was two years of my life that I don't remember seeing anything else, but it was fantastic because there's that passion there to, to achieve it all. Um, and, and it's run like a small theatre company. So you're working with the costume design students and the production uh, manu- um, management students and the actors... Um, I made a cat suit for Kate Blanchett. <laughs> she was one of my year. Tony Collette was the same year. A lot of really great people went through at that time. It was a really fun time to be in the arts and uh, and at night. But those student years are, you know, so formative for so many people. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned historical pattern making. How far back does pattern making? How far go? back do you want, <laughs> do you want to go? Yeah. What it what it teaches you? It teaches you the skills of how to pattern make. Mostly you go back to sort of, I suppose, 1600, um, but you learn to interpret uh, historical costumes and you learn how to, to research how to do those patterns. So you don't have to know every single element of it, but you have the foundation so that you can branch off into those so you're going various periods. The Elizabethan period is Yeah, as and, far you, back and then as and you when you're on a show that you're you know, over a certain period, you'll focus on that. You'll pick up on those elements um, and, and and really hone those skills at that time. And then you might switch to doing an, uh, you know, art deco show and, and you'll change again um, because the cut of something so sells the time in which it is set. And if you get it wrong, it can really backfire. Um, you know, the 1920s and 1980s, are quite borderline with their pattern lines sometimes. And if you get it wrong, you've got some bad drop-waisted frocks on stage and not a beautiful 1930s, you know, uh, evening gown. So, yeah, 
it's um it's a delicate line, and when it it's when it's great, it yeah it really sells it. It's a very specialised area then that, that you're working in. Yeah, it is very specialised. Are there many people around who have these skills? Uh, if you're out there and you would like a job, <laughs> look, there there are a lot of people very highly skilled. The industry at the moment is incredibly busy. Uh, I know they, they say that we're suffering, but the wardrobe side of it or the costume side of it has been spread so thin um, with the arrival of movies coming out to Australia to be made. And then when COVID hit and all those productions came to Australia and they saw, I, I think, how great the skill set was here and the work ethic um, and the attitude and, and how easy it is to work here, more and more productions are coming here. And, uh, the you know, even the, the big sort of... Or, you know, big costume houses here are getting more and more work for overseas because of the quality of what we do um, and, and I think how easy it is to work with us. And we used to be, when I first started, we were very, Australia was very far away from the rest of the world. Yeah. You know, you faxed an order to Germany to get your fabrics and what arrived you dealt with. Whereas now, you know, it's an email, it's online, it's here in two days. It's It's a different world that we work in now and the world has opened up and you can get so much more um but then the expectation is more so swings and roundabouts <laughs> are there many courses in australia for costume building and, and learning how to uh, nida is the the main one um tafe do a course as well uh i think just at ultimo um possibly one other um and victorian college of the arts has a course on whopper so there, there are quite a few courses around um but I, I'm a huge believer, uh, and this has proven to me time and time again, it's not actually about the skill level, it's about the attitude. And if you come in with an attitude and you want to learn, you will pick it up on the job um, and you'll pick it up by watching the people around you. Um, and, that's, and that's the kind of stuff that I look for is, yes, with skills, but with a, you know, a great attitude that want to learn. Because I think, I think that's what I saw in myself when I first started. I didn't have the skills, mm. but I listened to what people told me. You know, as simple as, this is how you knot off a thread. Now, every time I do that, I think of the woman that told me how to do it because it's the correct way to do it and it will last longer. That, that type of um, attitude to your work makes the costume better just all over and better for everybody around that's working on it. You served in an apprenticeship, really, didn't you? Yeah. Of sorts. Of sorts. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think... I can't even remember what I was being paid, but it was certainly not a lot an hour. But <laughs> I was just happy to be here. But prior to you, there were a couple of generations of, of costume makers at Opera Australia. Yeah. Who certainly knew the ropes. And yeah, yeah. Oh, there were some incredibly the talented old people. School, yeah. The old school. Um, John Papadopoulos was a, you know, Paris-trained couture dressmaker... Um, who brought those skills into the workroom. Bill Patterson um, was the head of the department. He'd come from England, but also he'd run the department as well. So he knew every element. You know, he cut for Dame Joan. That that was who he... That was his level. That was his skill level. I always remember she'd drop in to pick up her dry cleaning occasionally um, and she'd sit down at his table and have a cup of tea and, and she was like this giant presence in the room that no one said anything, you know, about because you don't go and disturb her. And we, at that time, used to have tour groups through um, just general members of the public 
and they'd come through and on one occasion there she was sitting at the table it was just like <laughs> wow is this where she works you know? <laughs> that was a bonus yeah, yeah well speaking of dry cleaning uh, laundering is a big component of of the yeah. job yeah. i guess that you you're overseeing um I suppose it's hand washed too. Certain items need to be hand washed or machine washed or yeah. Look, what's the bulk of it done through dry cleaning? Or? No, the bulk. Well, it depends on the show. Yeah. The bulk of it is done through machine washing laundry every night. Anything worn next to the body is washed every night. Men's shirts, women's undergarments, uh, socks, stockings. That that kind of situation. We then will hand wash delicate items. Um, or an item that is maybe not machine washable, like men's. We now design the men's evening white waistcoats so that you can wash them rather than dry clean them just because they yellow so quickly with handling. Right. So if you can get them washed, I mean, water will take out much more than dry cleaning and, uh, you know, airing will do. Um, and then at the end of a run, depending on how long the show is, that's when we do a big dry clean. Um, and then if it's the musical, we'll dry clean in, in shifts, really. We'll do some one week, some the next week, so that it's staggered and not a huge load on the dry cleaner on a Monday morning to be back for the Tuesday matinee. Yes. Yeah. And with the understanding that the performer follows the, the rules of the theatre, don't eat in your costume. Oh, yes, don't that's a good one. Don't sit down in your costume. Yeah, oh, really. <laughs> don't smoke in your costume. Smoking was an issue when I first started, but then we smoked in the workroom. Right. So... Um, you couldn't really tell them not to. I think the big big one for them was you couldn't leave the theatre in costume. It happens. They do. <laughs> they get in trouble. Um, eating is a big one. Um, even water can stain certain things. But I appreciate too, if it's an you know, eight-hour call that day and you're in a corset for most of it, you've got to be able to sit down and stop. If it's a show, that's one thing. But if it's a rehearsal period... Yeah, you're generally in costume for a long time. Yeah. yeah. It is a battle with uh, keeping dressing gowns over the top of costumes. We designed, I, I didn't, my predecessor designed a dressing gown a few years ago that was a bit like a straight jacket. It went on, you know, covering the front and tied around. And I don't think I ever saw it worn once correctly. It was just draped over the shoulders like a kimono. It was like a token <laughs> effort. So... And most people, most of the um, artists are fantastic. They, you know, they've got, when they walk out on stage, if they've spilt something on their costume, it's them that's being looked at. You know, we're the ones that'll have to clean it later, but most of them are generally pretty good. Rebecca, do you remember as a kid uh, a show which really took your imagination and opened you up to the possibilities of theatre? I, I remember the first show I saw, I remember as a, as a child, it was a school excursion um, and we went off to see a production of the Arkansas bear I couldn't tell you what it was about I think there was a bear in a bear costume but it it was this world that you know the lights went down you sat in the dark you had to behave and this event was performed in front of you and it was most likely funny because it was for kids and there was probably music and singing but I just remember being in this darkened room watching this light on stage and loving every minute of it and then coming home and drawing pictures about it and telling my parents and and yeah it was a really uh, strong memory I why the Arkansas bear I, I do not know why to Australian school students would you put on a production of the Arkansas bear 
you know, the Wagga Wagga Koala. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I'm sure that's what they go and see now. And I know the school shows that travel around uh, that we produce, I'm very conscious of this may be the first time that a kid will have seen opera uh, or or a performance live or or live singing um, and to make it, you know, a special experience for them. Yes, it's important to remember that because those first experiences stay with that person for a lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'll be bringing back the Arkansas Bear, don't you worry, (laughs) the opera. (laughs) Were there many encounters with opera growing up? Look, there was. I I said my family was in theatre. My father um, was a, a production manager at Sydney Festival, so growing up, um, the big connection to opera I had was the uh, domain events. So the domain concerts, there was jazz, classical, opera, and I think an Australia Day event, yeah. country music, something. Yeah. And as kids, we were free labour on the coffee and tea stall backstage. So we would go in on Saturday morning, really early, like 7 a.m., set up the coffee and tea, chop up fruit, and monitor the the coffee and tea all day, making sure the boiler was running. And they would be rehearsing. So they would have a stage orchestral, I suppose they called it at the time, during the day, and you would see the artists come and go, um, including Joan Sutherland. She did the first one. Um, And I remember this buzz about this, you know, grand person was going to be there. I had no idea as a kid. I was like eight um, that there was going to be this grand event and then as the day wore on and you could hear the, the music happening and you could hear the sound checks um, then it would get dark and then they would emerge from their dressing rooms you know fully made up and fully in evening gowns and tails and all backstage in this mud pit that was the domain concerts and you know portaloos and stepping over tree logs and and then they, you know, go up onto the stage and you just hear the silence of the the whole park go, like it would just disappear. And then they would perform and we'd hear it from backstage. And it was mind-blowing, you know, as young kids to hear something like that and to be involved in it as well. Um, and then the show would come down and everyone would be celebrating backstage. And then, because my father was the production manager, we'd be there till one or two in the morning. Packing up and you'd get to the hotel and you'd have the first bit of real food you'd had all day. But just that buzz of it all, that achievement of everyone coming together um, and being part of that was really special. And I guess that's that's why I'm here now, you know, from those little moments. Yeah. Yeah. As head of um, wardrobe and wigs... You're working on, you know, at the start of this conversation, we talked about uh, Madame the Butterfly and La Traviata and Il Trovatore. Talk me through uh, a build for those productions. So okay. from the day that you're told we're doing this particular opera, yep. what does your job entail? So you generally find, I mean, you'll, you'll hear that the production's being done 18 months out. Um, so that far? That we'll we'll get knowledge that well it will have been decided much earlier than that. Wow. Yeah. Um, generally, when the design is presented, twelve months. So we'll have, uh, get it twelve months in advance. With something like Butterfly, for instance, um, Jennifer Irwin was the designer. We worked with her very closely. So we we get the designs. They get presented. They get presented 
ideally to the whole company, but COVID has really sort of made that challenging. So it's a bit, you know, stagnated at the moment and a bit separate. We will go through, sit down and go through the designs with her bit by bit. Myself, Miranda Brock, the buyer, the supervisor, um, possibly some of the uh, head tailor or head ladies cutter. And we go through with Jenny every inch of each design so that we can put a costing together and get an idea of the feel of the show, how she wants it to look, what ideas she's bringing to it. Um, and it's a really exciting part because everyone's coming in with their ideas. Well, we could do it like this. We could do it like that. She wanted the kimonos on the chorus ladies to be quite stiff and uh, rigid and angular. But they still, of course, got to move. So you can't make them solid. And so we were playing around with all of these ideas, which canvas, what should we use? How would we do it? And in the end, it was a simple solution, which we all came together on, which was neoprene, which we got in white with a black backing on it and so when you turn over the edge you get your black edge well there was saving many many hours on binding things with with uh, black binding so that process of nutting it all out to see how we're going to make it happen is really really exciting so it's very much a collaborative experience very much so and anyone who works in costume will tell you that's why they do it because it's the collaboration between the, the designer the sewer the cutter and the artist eventually um, you learn something every single day from the people around you and that's what makes it that's that's the joy of it because each day you, there's something more you're going to learn about it and something also that you can bring to it and a buyer as well and a I buyer mean, as well so the buyer so you don't necessarily have those roles of material already in the workroom you've no, got to go out and source them not at all right. so she uh, has an incredible eye for not only fabrics but items that we might have to buy um shoes accessories metal pieces embroidery whatever it is she's got um an amazing ability to remember where she got something 100 years ago even though we keep it all notated um but yeah it's it's a great coming together of creative minds and it's just this like you can feel the buzz when you start talking about it like okay how are we going to do this um and so that process will take about a week and then I do the boring bit and punch the numbers into the budget um, and see what it's going to cost, generally more than what we what we have. <laughs> and then we go back and look at it again. Um, meanwhile, the buyer and, and, the, and the designer have started working, you know, actually sourcing and getting things in. So that, that ideally is 12 months in advance. Um, so that will be the first, you know, month. And then we... Uh, come regroup again and we talk with the cutters about exactly how we want the costume made and that's down to the real nitty-gritty of where do you want your seams what kind of shaping how do you want this to look um because there are a hundred different ways you could make a kimono right just because there are so many options so you nut that bit out with the cutter who then creates the patterns for that costume and then they give it to their staff to put together for a first fitting. We have to, we're very tightly scheduled with the chorus at OA about when we can get them with, with their blocks of availability. So very much we're dictated to by when the chorus are available. So we'll generally fit them first, um, finish the fittings, take the notes from that, and then work on the costume to finish, to get it finished. 
And then things like art department and uh, any of those last-minute tweaks will happen in the, well, ideally in the weeks beforehand, but often in the hours before a piano dress. (laughs) I'm not going to lie. I've taken (laughs) wet fabrics down to that stage and put them in the hot box. Um, it can be it can be as tight as that wow. sometimes. So, um, and then we and we fit the principles generally in the rehearsal period. So that's about three weeks before the stage. Um, anything we can endure in advance is a great benefit to us because we have so many shows on at any one time. They all need some time to to slot in. Yeah. Working on a few shows at once. Is there someone responsible for each show, or you're you're overseeing all of them? Uh, no, I've I've got a great team of costume coordinators who each right. will look supervise a show, yeah. um, and so they'll focus on generally two shows at any one time, and they'll be in pre production for one and and possibly closer to the tech for another. So my role at the beginning of the year is to look at that big schedule and go, okay, well they're going to be busy that week with chorus fitting, so they can't be still at the stage on another show, and slotted it in. It's like a puzzle trying to work out how it will work because if it if people are too busy at one time then that you know it's it's too too stressful and too much of a burden um so these tight deadlines which unfortunately COVID has been giving us has been very problematic in being able to manage that well for everyone's Physical and mental health. <laughs> yeah. And we're not talking a company of, of 30 singers. I saw La Jouive early in the year, and I think I counted up to 80 performers on stage. Yeah, La, La Jouive was, was quite large, but it was a really simple costume. So, you know, it swings and roundabouts. Some are great. Um, and, and although I do often say every show is the same size, like it will fill your workday regardless of whether it's just simple suits or you know ball gowns it's um it's yeah they, they they're busy sometimes with their simplicity as well yeah, yeah. well with that number though you, you need a, a fair amount of storage yes yeah, where we does do. it, where's it all go where? <laughs> we used to store everything on site when i first started and it everything was so tightly packed that you everything was crushed by the time it came out and all the tops of the shoulders faded because that was the only bit visible to the light. So we now store things in their own show uh, off-site um, at a storage facility. And what that means is that we take the time at the end to make sure that every single piece that we need is there and it's stored well and it's stored away from light and moisture and moths and anything else that can damage it. And then that gets shipped back in and out as needed. So... Boehm has been in and out of the building, I can't tell you how many times. Turandot's the same, whereas something like La Jouie's only come in once and been shipped back out. What about the difference between um, an opera which might have very realistic costumes to something which is more fantastical, perhaps like a ring cycle? Mm-hmm. Is there much difference in creating those costumes? Oh, like, I mean, yeah. the, the, some of those fantastical costumes might present issues and how are we going to solve this problem of the collar of which yeah. shoots up or yeah i mean we, we started building um uh, costumes for ring cycle i can't even remember how many years ago now it's been bumped twice <laughs> um and and they are you know fantasy costumes they've got some incredibly clever i'm not going to give it away techniques and tricks in them um and you become like an engineer like how are we going to figure this out and i think 
that's the bit I actually love the most, the nutting out how are we going to make this thing on a page work in reality. Like it's got to move here and it's got to fit there and it's got to, you know, be able to withstand flame and all the tricks and all the elements that will come at it. Um, and so, yeah, that that as opposed to a modern production, um, we tend to, well, because modern clothing is much cheaper to buy than it is to produce in-house Generally, we go down the pathway of buying a lot of stuff right. for a modern production. Yeah. Um, we don't want to be sitting there making grey suits for men for days. It's just a waste of their, you know, skill and, and mental energy. Well, uh, talking of costumes which are a bit out of the ordinary, um, opera on the harbour, out of the ordinary because you're exposed to the elements. Yeah. Um, we saw recently at the start of the Phantom of the Opera, he yeah. experienced a lot of water, yeah. a lot of rain. Yeah. So how do you make those costumes in which they can be, be resilient to all of those? Uh, Look, you, you can't make everything waterproof. It's right. not possible. We'd have to be sponsored by a trekking company or something, I yeah. think, to be totally waterproof. But we are able to withstand the water. So we use a lot of polyesters and a lot of plastic fabrics. Um, we'll do uh, some waterproofing on things, Scotchgard equivalent, really. Um, but you can't make them 100% waterproof. So they will get wet, the hems will get heavy, they then become weak and they will tear. It's just, unfortunately, part of the drill. Um, on Phantom, we had the issue with wind. Some of the wigs and costume elements you know, caught too much wind on a, on a windy night. Um, so we had a sort of a double set of smaller, less elaborate wigs that they could wear so that uh, we didn't have this massive maintenance issue the following day. So you, you, you know, pick and choose where it's going to work and for you. Um, but then one of Christine's dresses was a, a beautiful silk and it withstood it just as well as the polyester. So, um, yeah, it, it's four weeks of elements and you make sure each day you're checking it so that it's looking as beautiful as it can. Did, did you make double sets of costumes for the principals? Because otherwise, I imagine your workload is huge overnight, drying that costume. No, and we, sure. we didn't do double loads. Right. That, would, that would be a lovely experience. But we yeah, do have to do double sets when we have double cast. So on Phantom, right. we only had one cast. But yeah. for the operas, we'll ha- have two casts. So we do double sets for them. Um, no, it, it, look, there's a, a lot of make, a lot of work goes on the, goes on behind the scenes the following day getting everything washed, making sure that it's uh, safe, redressing the wigs. It, it's just part of the gig. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, with La Traviata coming up, you've got two sopranos sharing that role. Um, so costumes are both. Yeah, they do split seasons, though, so I actually think they might be sharing right. the same set. Right. Yeah, but we've got quite a lot of Violettas lined up. It's a bit like a chorus line of Violetta's. So many women have done it over the years, so we've got quite a few to choose from. It must be rewarding when that curtain goes up and you have immediate audience applause reaction. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. Opening night of Hosh, we got a round of applause and I turned to the supervisor on the show and I said, that was for you. Like, that's all your hard work that that they're just viewing there because... It is a huge element and a huge part of the show. And often we can, you know, we go and we just do our work on our own and it doesn't affect too many other people because they're smaller pieces and we're making them function. But when, yeah, when the curtain or, or the, the sun goes down and, um, and 
that image appears on stage, particularly when the Hannibal scene where they first came out, and there was a round of applause for how they looked. And I was incredibly proud of the work that the team had done because it was a very hard, hard struggle to get that show on. We were just very limited by time um, and rehearsal requirements and all those things that, that, that pick away at it. And we got it there, and it was amazing. It was an incredible-looking show. Yeah. The theatre is about um, staged pictures. Yeah. Um, and, you know, costumes are certainly no small part of that. You know, there's the staging and the set and all that sort of thing. But those costumes just pop and complete yeah, I, I think... The vividness of the picture. Well, on, on Hosh Phantom, Gab is, you know, such an accomplished designer. Um, her set, it was incredible. But people had been looking at the set for two hours prior to the show starting. They'd seen what the set looked like, yeah. so now it was their turn for our turn to to show us show them what we could do. What are the the tools of your trade? Do you, do you walk around with a tape measure around your neck and uh, a pencil <laughs> in your pocket? You do walk around with a tape measure around yeah. your neck. It is um, part of the drill, and it's like costuming one hundred and one. Whenever you have to do a wardrobe mistress in a show, because it's practical. That's where you put your tape measure. Um, tools of the trade are, oh, yeah, tape measure. You'll often have a pin cushion on your wrist so that you can access pins in a fitting. Uh, you, for the cutters, it's rulers and uh, plastic shapes that can give you curves. Uh, its reference books are a huge part of it as well. Um, and we have this great device which everyone loves when they come to the fitting. It seems to, you know, amuse anyone it's a it's a hem puffer and it's literally it's a thing that puffs chalk out in a straight line but you can set it at the height that you need and you can level your hem the biggest issue is that everyone wants to look at it operating which means you bend forward and look at it and then the hem's at the wrong level so you're constantly telling artists don't look at the machine just eyes straight to the mirror um so yeah there's lots of tools of the trade that make it um that help your work but really it comes down to the brain and the hands that are putting it together some people are great with tailoring and wools other people's skill is leather you know there's women who work really well on fine fabrics it, it really is a, a skill that you get in your hands um, how you feel something how you can style a wig how you put a hat together it's um yeah, it's very much down to the, the skill of the individual. And then you try and focus where those people are highly skilled into that direction without boring them with just leather coats or, you know. Is there much opportunity for recycling? Yeah. Yeah. A lot of, not a, uh, some of Phantom on the Harbour, just in order for us to be able to get it there in time, was recycled. So we used quite a few costumes from an old Romeo and Juliet for the day wear scene. Uh, the... We, we have done in the past some big costume sales, like a version of a garage sale. And the first year we did it, we got rid of all the crap, all the old cloaks that were falling apart. Thank you, Game of Thrones. Everyone wanted an old cloak with a fake fur <laughs> collar. Um, so we got rid of a lot of that stuff, and it was amazing. It was a huge, huge, massive turnout um, and really rewarding like the room was cleared in a matter of hours the last one that we did was mid-covid and again it was very restricted um we didn't quite have all that garbage to sell so we sold a lot um but we take out of that prior to selling what we think we're going to use anything that's a basic costume that we know can slot into another show you're not going to 
keep something that's so unique to one show uh, that you can't put it anywhere else. Yeah. Yeah. And in we've also done some major sort of high-level auctions where it's the costume pieces have gone to um, the Arts Museum in Melbourne and, and various collectors, and it's nice to know that they've got a different life, or, or even to the artists who wore them. Um, as an actor, one of my favourite parts of the process was the fitting, the costume mm-hmm. fitting. You finally start to look at what the character's going to look like. Um, but... Um, the performance comes with certain restrictions sometimes. Are you privy to the staging to see what the singers are required to do? It might be falling down or running up a series of stairs or whatever. So at fitting time, is there a negotiation where a singer can say, I need to do this? Yeah, they'll certainly mention it if they feel like they're not going to be able to move in something. Generally, we make sure that they can do whatever they would be needing to do in a costume make sure that they've got enough arm movement some costumes won't allow it like and and we'll say look you can get your arm up to here but no further and she's that's fine I don't need to do that I stab him with this arm or something you know um so it's if when you get to the stage and you find out last minute that they're being dragged across the floor in a white gown that's made of silk chiffon that's when you cry because you haven't been told about it um but generally, there's pretty good communication with the, with the, from the artist and the designer to come together in the fitting and say, here's what I need. Hats are an important yeah. part of the costume. They yeah, they really don't stay on for very long. The <laughs> <laughs> there's lots of pins, I imagine. In, Women's hats stay on because yeah. they'll be pinned into wigs. But hats change the way you hear the orchestra and your own sound. So it can be very difficult for an artist to wear a hat for, an, for a long time or, or particular moments in an opera. We did a production of Billy Budd a few years ago um, and the, all the set on a boat, all the men, most of the men had bike horns and the problem was that the sound got trapped under their ears so no matter which way they wore their hat, it was still problematic and we had to look at putting uh, leather on the underside of the hat to bounce the noise away it didn't really work. They just became, I think, more tolerant of it. But we also have to be really careful with causing damage. You know, if, we've, if we're trapping sound in masks or or hats, it wow. can be, you know, problematic. Consideration. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they don't, they can't hear themselves properly. And then you're jeopardising their craft, and that's not acceptable. I'm, I'm thinking about a show like Cecil Beaton's My Fair Lady mm. and the Ascot scene, yeah. that beautiful fashion parade of, yeah. of the ladies and yeah. the hats and, and gowns and all that sort yeah. of thing. You, you have a milliner on your team? Yes, or, we yeah. do. We have a milliner, Rebecca uh, Reed. She uh, headed up that team for My Fair Lady. The, the designer we were working with on that, uh, John David Ridge, had done the production. He'd worked with Cecil Beaton, so he'd, he knew those hats inside and out um and and what he wanted and how they were to be made and so we uh used not only our in-house milliner but a couple of outside milliners as well in order to be able to just deliver in time um and we'd also he wanted the hats stitched to the wigs he wanted them so that when the wig went on the hat went on that would have been fine 30 years ago when you had a team of people to be able to redress the next day but my concern was that you were trapped then. You couldn't get in under the hat or you had to re-stitch it several times and it's never going to go back in the same place. 
So together with our, uh, Rebecca, we created a sort of like a docking system where we had a ring on the wig and a ring on the hat. And the two of them went together with magnets so that you could take the hat off and dress around this docking station wow. and then put the hat back on. And it worked perfectly. Um, it was kind of nice to see that even after all these years, you could still improve on something that had been such a success. Yeah. 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 Yeah, uh, certain costumes are very difficult to get in and out of mm-hmm. for the performer. So a team of dresses is essential. Mm-hmm. How many dresses would you have working on? Look, it depends on the production. Yeah. Um, generally, if it's a like Bohem, you've got four in each chorus room, um, one for the uh, dancers or the actors, one for the kids. A couple of principals will be, done, uh, will be done by one dresser. It really depends on how many changes they've got and just how busy the show's going to be. Um, and then, you you know, ebb and flow is needed. Aida, we thought we were going to need a lot more dresses than we actually did. So, um, yeah, it really, really depends on the size of the production. Yeah. yeah. Um, on a recent visit to Opera Australia, I was lucky enough to see your wig room. Uh-huh. It's extraordinary. Yeah. It's a, a, bit, little... a bit eerie. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of scalps hanging in the Absolutely. in the wig room. So, um, and I, I was astounded to hear that they are all handmade. Yeah, I mean they are handmade. Um, we will do a a handmade wig for a principal that is knotted to their head shape, um, and the reason that you do that is that you get the best fit that you can. You get uh, the the colour of the hair, the direction that you want the hair to lie. Uh, what you can style it it's a wig that will fit them perfectly and do what it needs to do there are simpler ways of cutting through that and we can reuse old wigs and we cut literally like scalping the forehead off the front replacing that and doing a new hairline so that it fits this new person so wigs are quite remarkable because you can use them over and over and over again we have a numbering system in the wig room so you start we started at number one, and we're up to God. I think it's like five, three thousand something. I can't remember. So number one was built when when it was Opera Australia started. When it was the Australian Opera. Yep, yep. That number one wig we actually just reused as the old Raoul wig on Hosh Phantom, and the most recent wig that we had made was the brand new Raoul wig. So he was wearing the first wig ever made by Opera Australia and the latest wig wow. ever made by Opera Australia. It was just a lovely, you know coincidence um but it's still going strong human hair will last as long as you treat it well and store it properly you can keep using it can they misbehave wigs oh god yes so hair grows in one direction if a wig has been made incorrectly and the hair's been put in upside down you will just it will get like it will felt it will just and it's useless you can't use it it's destroyed so part of the skill is understanding how hair flows how it should be used and and not getting that wrong basically um and yes you know that they can misbehave they tend to behave better than hair because you can heat them and style them um and they're not being you know tortured by this the own sweat underneath there's a little bit of a barrier so they tend to behave better than um real hair and there seems to be a lot more redheads in opera than there are in real life right. i don't know maybe it's the red wigs a lot Is of red wigs well, yeah a lot of prostitutes maybe well, i don't know reds are such a theatrical color yeah I suppose. yeah so, yeah, yeah. And certainly the character pops mm. 
Rebecca, what has been your routine on opening nights? What do you what do you generally do? Oh, opening nights. Um, Are you able to be out front? Or, yes, yes. Yeah, so out front. Um, I like to drop in backstage and, and just say hi to the dressers and the backstage crew. Um, there's a great buzz on an opening night. You know, people are, you know, excited. They're generally there a bit early. There's a few... Flowers. Yeah, all of that. There's a few glamorous frocks hanging up ready to be thrown on faster than they got into their costume. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so and then I'll watch the performance, usually with my husband or, or best friend. He he saw a lot of the performances over the years, so he tends to hand that role over to my best friend now. Um, and watch the performance and be able to relax and just enjoy it because I've stopped being critical. I have a very critical eye watching yep. tech rehearsals. I, I have to. Um, and so I'm always looking for the thing that's wrong and not just sitting back and enjoying it. I look for the thing that's wrong so that no one else is going to see the thing that's wrong. Mm. So it's um, it's a nice time to, yeah, sit back, enjoy the performance, enjoy the singing um, and, and, you know, be uh, thankful for the amazing crew that I work with that allows that to, to get on stage. You know, I, I, I mean, I can't do it. My, my own, they do a remarkable job of, of uh, putting beautiful costumes on stage. Yeah. Or dreadful, disgusting costumes if that was needed. Yeah. We often do that as well. Is that as much fun to make? Oh, it's a good, it's great fun to, to break down costumes and yeah, it make gives them it a, gives them a life. I mean, no yeah. one's clothes are one hundred percent perfect, yeah. um, and it and it just adds to the character. We're doing some breaking down at the moment on Trovatore, and it's a um, grimy dirty circus world and so you need the costumes need to look like they've been worn for 40 years by several different performers there's sweat and you know animal poop on them and dirty and broken down so that we can create that world amongst these bright digital screens yes exciting superstition in the theater do you have any superstitions oh well you know the usuals um Scottish play, whistling in the dressing room. That was a big one. Swearing in the dressing room as well. Um, I think that comes from my mother's kind of ballet world. Yes, I was going to say, coming from a theatrical family, there was probably a, yeah. a bit of that. Yeah. Um, salt over the shoulder if I spill it, but that's more a cooking one, I think. Yeah. Oh, no, uh, <laughs> oh, well, that could be salt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. What's your favourite part of a theatre? Favorite part? Do you like being in the wings? A lot of people like watching. No, I don't like being or... in the wings. It's not my comfort area. It's not where I. I don't like being on stage at all. Right. Um, uh, no, I think. I don't know. I think maybe the corridors outside the dressing rooms. Like you've got, you're seeing people coming and going. Um, there's a real buzz, um, and yeah, probably the corridors of the opera house. Um, or, yeah, the green rooms, you know, seeing people yeah. sit around and, and relax. And um, I, My father worked at the Sydney Opera House. He was a stage manager there. And I was sick with uh, chicken pox, I think. Mum was away and he had to take me to work. It was the first time I'd gone into the Opera House. Five, sick as a dog. And he took me up the stairs as you enter just after stage door and the big doors opened to the green room. And it was this massive room for a small child. It's still massive. And he plopped me down on the chair and he said, I'll be back. 
And I just sat there as all these people crossed in front of me and around me and came over to say hi. And, and it was this just swirling buzz of amazement. And I still feel a little bit like that when I walk into the room. It's the same people yeah. are still buzzing around and ordering their lunch and walking past in costume and warming up and going to the ballet rehearsal room. I still feel that buzz that I had that many years ago. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's, it's a hive of activity, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. People are swanning in and out and to and from yeah. the various and shows. Yeah, there are these little there. corridors that you can't see where they end and twist and turn. And yeah, um, yeah it's a lovely, it's a lovely theatre to work in. Well, it's a, a wonderful theatre too, which will be hosting the, the winter season for Opera Australia, La Traviata, Madame Butterfly, um, Travatore, yeah. Phantom of the Opera. Um, yeah. You come back with Attila. Attila. Yeah, yeah. And all are going to look splendid because of the work of, of you and your fabulous team. Ah, thank you. So uh, I think they say toy toy in uh, the chukas. opera world. Or chukas <laughs> chukas in the well. ballet world, oh, yeah. Right. yeah. Okay. Um, uh, all the best for, for the season, Rebecca, and thank you for such a delightful chat. Oh, my pleasure. Thank right. you for inviting me. Opera Australia presents Seasons of La Traviata from July 5th to 29th and from October 22nd to November 4th at the Sydney Opera House. The production is directed by Elijah Mashinsky. Davide Livermore's production of Il Travatore plays July 5th until 30th, again at the Sydney Opera House. Striking productions that celebrate operatic majesty and grandeur and provide oral delight and allowed pretty impressive visuals by my guest today, Opera Australia Head of Wardrobe and Wigs, Rebecca Ritchie. Thanks for tuning in to this episode. You've been listening to Stages. I'm Peter Eyes. Keep warm, keep well, stay safe, and I'll catch you next time.